Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Jacques Poe was a founder member of the anti-apartheid Afrikaans newspaper Freer Wierkblatt in the late 1980s. He then became a documentary maker. He left journalism in 2014 after collecting various international awards and bought a restaurant and guesthouse in Ribeck Castile, where he now lives. Some of the incidents or events have been known to us for 18 months or so as they were leaked or released, but Poe draws them together in an easy-to-read style that makes them all fresh again. After examining the law enforcement community, he comes to the conclusion it is cloaked by a septic web of deceit, delinquency and depravity, naming what he calls venomous spiders in the persons of Richard Mdluli and Nongkobo Jiba. He says one cannot grasp the upheaval of the police and the MPA without understanding the roles of these two. It makes for a fascinating chapter. Another enthralling chapter deals with the South African Revenue Service, SARS, and how the effective, efficient revenue service built by Praveen Gordon was looted with impunity under the control of Tom Moyani, who rushed to the assistance of the Guptas and flouted the rules in order to provide them with a dodgy tax refund. Zuma's parallel state, the state within the state, with its felonious and complicit bands of what Poe describes as cronies, thieves, derelicts, brutes, conspirators, fraudsters, insurrectionists, vagrants and gypsies are heading for the ANC conference where they will attempt to rig, steal and influence both the elective conference and the general election in 2019. To survive and enrich himself, Zuma has been prepared to defy the constitution, put the economy at risk, jeopardize social grants, allow his cronies to plunder and capture the state and look on while the law enforcement agencies implode. Poe asks why he should not unleash his pack of Rottweilers to ensure his liberty and prosperity and stuff a few ballot boxes with Inkosazana Zuma and ANC papers. That would be a minor task considering what we've been through the last eight years, including upgrading in Kandla, downgrading our economy, escalating the deficit, increasing unemployment, and service delivery protests because of incompetent local government. All this would be no problem, bearing in mind his middle name, which is Gedle Yehitlekisa. It means the one who laughs while grinding his enemies. Poe has a writing style which is easy to follow, making the story race along as if one is reading a thrilling crime novel. It is very difficult to put down. If you do not have a copy, make sure your name is registered at your local bookstore to ensure great holiday reading. And of course, as you know, Wordsworth Books has a decreased price on it. And here's our competition question to win one of two 250 rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. We all know that Santa Claus sails the skies in a sleigh filled with gifts. Who pulls his sleigh? Is it rhinos? Is it Reindeers, ring us on 021-401-1013. Beverly Rosemuller, you were thunderstruck by S.J. Nordy's The Third Reef. The word I am looking for is thunderstruck. 
with all that implies, heat, humidity, lightning, sweat, commanding attention. Reading S.J. Nordea's The Third Reel pinioned me, unable to move away from it, and at the end exhausted, and at the same time exhilarated. It is a magnificent, brilliant feat of writing, visceral and unflinching, and it marks the point when Nordea moves to the front line of the best South African writers. The third reel is a post-apartheid book, using South Africa only as a springboard and alarm into the cosmopolitan, complicated world of Europe in the 1980s. It is the pitiless time of Thatcher's Britain. Etienne Nivenhuis has fled his home country to encounter another form of harshness abroad. While studying film in London in 1986, he lives in semi-poverty, persuading himself that anything is better than an obsession with rugby and the butch culture of total onslaught. He is also gay, though it would be a mistake to dismiss this superb novel merely as a gay book. Its explicitly homosexual content forms part of Etienne's determination to live his life as an artist, a lover, and a seeker of the elusive third reel of the book's title. This reel refers to a missing film made under the worst possible conditions in the 1933 run-up to the Holocaust in Germany. Shot largely in secret, the reels split apart to secure its survival. This also means that it is almost impossible to find, given that its creators have since died or disappeared, and also that some of the film's footage is almost certainly behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany. A ghost film, says his lover Axel, a German artist he meets in London. They fall utterly in love, a love of burning intensity. But then Axel returns to East Germany, and Etienne, who has hesitated to go with him, must follow, putting behind him safety, taking the risk into the brutal unknown, while ignoring his plaintive mother, whose pile of sad, unanswered letters from South Africa continues to grow. East Germany is a Blake-like nightmare. On a scholarship there, mainly to find both Axel and the missing wheels, he discovers the blunt instrument of brutal propaganda. He recognizes their complicity and, I quote, feels as if he is back in South Africa, all the self-soothing and self-congratulating, all the forbidden thoughts hiding deep inside skulls. The third reel is a roman on a large stage, though much of its finest work lies in the tight interior depths of Etienne's personal seeking. He will find Axel, already ailing of a new and deadly disease, and their love will transform into something tender and productive, like the gorilla street garden they nurture. As for the third reel, it is the engine which drives the story forward, positioned within the huge pain of the Holocaust, but also a metaphor for lives unlived, and quests which must be undertaken because of what is unveiled during the search itself, even though the goal may not be achieved. It is beautifully written, absorbing without being overwhelming, tender, and beautiful. I can think of few books in the last many years of reading that have affected me more, 
or of which I have thought as highly. The third reel is also available in Afrikaans, titled Die Derde Spool. Nodi is the author of the prize-winning The Alphabet of Birds. He currently lives in Johannesburg. Flying adored, so young, the instant queen, a rich, beautiful thing, of all the talent a cross between a fantasy of the bedroom and a saint. You were just a backstreet girl, hustling and fighting, scratching and biting. Flying adored Did you believe In your wildest moments All this would be yours That you'd become The lady of them all When the stars in your eyes When you crawled in at night From the bars From the sidewalks from the gutter theatrical Don't look down, it's a long, long way to fall Flying adored What happens now? Where do you go from here? For someone on top of the world The view is not a shame you did it all at 26 There are no mysteries now Nothing can thrill you No one fulfill you I flying adore I hope you come to terms with boredom So famous so easily so soon it's not the wisest thing to be You won't care if they love you It's been done before You'll despair if they hate you You'll be drained of all energy All the young who've made it would have Flying Adored, and that was from Evita, sung by Antonio Banderas and Madonna. Jay Heal, surely one of your book selections would make the ideal Christmas present. 
Consider 50 people who stuffed up the world. <laughs> There's a book which is likely to launch a few thousand arguments about who else ought to have been included. The catchnet of authors Alexander Parker and Tim Richmond stretches from the Pashas of the Ottoman Empire, who kicked off World War I, to the Guptas' involvement in South African state capture, and taking in such characters as Osama bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, Cecil Rhodes, Stalin and Lenin, Favort and Milan, and the debut of Donald Trump and all the way made more ironic by superb cartoons from Zapiro. I found much of the book usefully informative. I now know much more about such unpleasant people as Pol Pot and Bernie Madoff and Mao Zedong. And I applaud the inclusion of the nameless lady who assures us your call is so important to us that we've been ignoring you for 17 minutes at your expense. <laughs> the Art of Winnie the Pooh is written by James Campbell, featuring the drawings of Ernest Shepherd a handsome, friendly book which shows on large pages the whole visual process through which Winnie the Pooh came into existence. Unusually for children's books of a hundred years ago, story and artwork grew together out of the warm relationship between A.A. Milne and Ernest Shepherd. This is art and biography, but it's also observation and delight young and older eyes will enjoy the juxtaposition of original sketches alongside finished artwork, spotting the changes. A family book which you will treasure on your bookshelf afterwards. And Hap by Leslie Beek, gold medal winner of the 2017 Sanlam Awards for Youth Literature from Tafelberg. Hap is a story of time and Africa of the boredom and occasional high excitement of archaeology, and you can't find anything much more slow-moving than that. It's a story of people, of characters clashing off each other. Teenage Lucy is nagging at old memories, hesitant about the future, and furiously perplexed about the present. It's about understanding Africa and understanding ourselves. Leslie Beek doesn't just tell a story, she probes into it, painting with words and thoughts and delicate observation. If you start digging, you discover, layer by layer, what lies below you and behind you. And Hap does this, while allowing Lucy to move forward into more mature understanding. Leslie writes about heat and cold, actual and metaphorical, you share the whole aching process of wondering exactly who you are. History shaped in poetry and not without some dramatic threats. Well-deserving its Sanlam gold medal, Hap is a convincing, thrilling, and brilliant novel. And surely one of those three books will fit your Christmas list. Cindy Moritz, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, a must-read on every list book. 
Absolutely. Little Fires Everywhere is making all the lists of must-read books for 2017. It's the perfect holiday pick with its blend of easy reading and thought-provoking issues woven through the story. The setting is 1990s Shaker Heights, Ohio, the canvas on which all events play out. Having lived there in her youth, writer Celeste Ng describes life in one of America's first planned communities, founded, if not on Shaker principles, with the same idea of creating a utopia. Order and regulation, the father of order, had been the Shaker's key to harmony. It is here that the affluent Richardson family live, mother Elena having grown up there and returned after college to the comfort of predictability and orderliness that she so valued, her lawyer husband and four children. It is also here that single mother and artist Mia Warren and her 15-year-old daughter Pearl arrive in their battered VW Rabbit to set up home having heard Shaker schools are the best in Cleveland. The opening line tells us that everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about how Isabel, the youngest of the four Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. This following all the gossip that spring about the baby adopted by a white couple after her Chinese mother had left her at the local fire station but then changed her mind. Although there's a strong motif of fire throughout the book, the takeaway is more about the notion of what makes a mother, the rights of a birth mother, and at the end of the day, the lengths to which a mother will go to find or keep her own flesh and blood. It's also about perceived racial blindness, ingrained judgment, and the facade of orderliness. Artist Mir is the antithesis of the orderliness that Shaker Heights represents. In one conversation with young Izzy Richardson, while she's cutting a photograph as part of her latest creative project, she says, I don't have a plan, I'm afraid, but then no one really does, no matter what they say. Izzy replies, my mother does. She thinks she has a plan for everything. I'm sure that makes her feel better, Mia says. The book raises questions for the reader of what would I do in that situation, but without creating any level of discomfort. What Ng does is provide many sides and perspectives through various characters, allowing the reader to identify where they will, but ultimately makes her own overriding statement on the biggest question. We are safely distanced from 1990 suburban USA where they still watch the Jerry Springer show and there's a notable absence of cell phones and the internet as we know it. But these are timeless issues and although the world has long since lost hope of the kind of utopia symbolized by Shaker Heights, Ng deftly brings us food for thought in an easy, well-crafted package. From a baby left at a fire station to a home ablaze, readers are left to discover for themselves little fires lit, burning and doused everywhere. And here's our competition question again to win one of two 250 250 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers. Actually, let's give away a copy of... I don't, we're going to give away a copy of 50 People Who Stuffed Up the World as well. It's so brilliant. 
We all know that Santa Claus sails the skies in a sleigh filled with gifts. Who pulls his sleigh? Is it rhinos or reindeer? We're waiting for your answers on 021 Philip Dodgers, an exquisite journey through the Owl House as you chat to bright-eyed author Anne Emsley. The Owl House by Anne Croft was first published in 1992 and has basically not been out of print since then, so it really has done the rounds. And the Owl House, Anne describes as a visionary outsider art environment unlike any other. Tell us why it is so special and what do you think it is that attracts so many people to go and visit the Owl House and, of course, obviously pick up your book before they go or after they've been there? Philip, I think there are a number of reasons. People love the Owl House. They love the eccentricity of it. To discover this place in the middle of the South African Karoo, this crazy, visionary art environment, is really quite surprising. And it attracts a pilgrimage from around the world. People come from all over, people who are interested in what is called outsider art. Describe that term, first of all. It's a term that can be synonymous with other terms like naive art or a term that I'm fond of, visionary art, because that encapsulates something of the spirit of the place. Uh, A third term is the Gardens of Revelation, which I love, because, again, that captures something of the spirit of the Owl House. It is, in a way, a journey. It's an art piece that encapsulates a quest, uh, Helen's quest. Helen's quest, if you like, to connect with immortality, to connect with the cosmos, to... Uh, what can I say? It's a mystical space. She was a mystic. I find that part of the story very interesting. And it's what sustains the artwork. It's not just a Karoo Disneyland. That part was also interesting and cute and funny and witty at times. But it's this other transcendental level overlaid on the Owl House that I think gives it enduring interest. And that's what you've managed to capture very specifically in this book. Was let's start with Helen Martins because this is a very special year. On the 23rd of December this year will mark her, her 120th birthday. So it's wonderful that you have now launched the book in New Bethesda this past Friday and it will have been launched this past week in Cape Town as well. So it is quite an achievement. And tell us a bit more about this particular edition because it is a special edition. Well, what I'm reissuing is the very first book I ever wrote on the Owl House. Subsequent to that, I wrote another book, which was in circulation for a long time. This has not been around for a long time, and I thought it deserved to reappear because it's got interviews with the people who worked with Helen, and that's very fascinating, and people who knew Helen. So it brings her to life in the words of other people as well as in my own words, and it was my first look at the Owl House all those years ago trying to unravel the meaning of the space and I just felt it it needed to be on the shelves again because in the intervening years there hasn't been that much on the Owl House with my emphasis. There hasn't been that, how can I say, understanding of Helen as a really important South African artist who is of international interest. Very few of our artists are of international interest. What is extraordinary to me is the number of visitors that go there and how many, I've gathered the percentage of something like 70% are foreigners. Something like that. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Now, I think what we also need to focus on is these, this absolutely fabulous design and the beautiful photographs. 
Yes, yes. The designer is Marius Rue, and the photograph, who's fabulous, he's a terrific Cape Town book designer, and I was very lucky that he took it on and uh, with great enthusiasm, and the photographs are by Samantha Reinders, and they are totally beautiful. They really are, and my only criticism may be is mm-hmm. it's taken this the rather mundane into the extraordinary. You now have a coffee table book, and I think that's worth commenting on. Perhaps you've got now different layers for the person who really wants to go in deep and those who want to... Yes, it, it's a visual subject. It's a book about art, and so it's important to have a journey that the reader can take through visuals as well. And I did try in the book to also create a second journey, the journey of the texts and the journey of the photographs with the captions. John Hanks, a guide to the garden route on the cover, dolphins. Does the garden route have dolphins? Yes, indeed it does. And this is quite an amazing book. And I must say, I have no hesitation whatsoever in saying that this is one of the very best guides of this genre of publications that should ideally not only provide comprehensive information on the area concerned, but also be so attractively presented that anyone reading it will immediately put the garden route high up on their bucket list of places to visit before they die. The world, of course, is big and life is so short, so how do you begin to make a choice of where to go? The Garden Route extends from Mossel Bay to the Sitsikama National Park, and it's an extraordinarily attractive part of South Africa with stunning landscapes, cultural diversity, and a celebration of biological diversity which inevitably will be completely missed by the many who rush through on the very busy end too. If this guide does not tempt you to slow down and spend time in the pristine Fambos dunes, the beautiful towering indigenous forests extending inland to steep-sided gorges with crystal-clear water bubbling down from spectacular mountains, you will be missing one of South Africa's crown jewels in our global commitment to international conservation. These are vital areas where natural evolution and ecological processes can operate with minimal human disturbance, a key factor in adding the garden route in June 2017 to the world network of biosphere reserves. The guide is superbly illustrated, with concise and informative text on the fauna, flora, coastline, rivers, mountains, and the wilderness lakeland, with an excellent section on human history, but the publication comes into its own with one of the best compilations I've ever seen of where to go and what to see and do. The choices have few equals anywhere in the world. Adventure tourism opportunities will tempt all those who want an active holiday, but for the less intrepid, the garden route has much to offer. Superb blue flag beaches, golf courses, museums linked to cultural and historical sites, surf and deep-sea fishing, markets and fine restaurants can all be enjoyed. When coupled with a great variety of scenically attractive wildlife destinations, with perhaps the cherry on the top being some of South Africa's best birding sites, offering the twitchers more special species than whole countries can offer, How can anyone who's never been there not put the area right at the top of priority places to visit, and for an extended stay too? The title again is The Definitive Guide to the Garden Route. It's been revised and updated in 2017, and it's published by Jakarna Media in Johannesburg. 
Well, just before we go off the garden route, Philippa Schaefitz, you're stirring things up in the kitchen with Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson. Two to choose. Two of the most loved cookery writers, Nigella Lawson and Jamie Oliver, have published new cookbooks, At My Table and Five Ingredients. Nigella is a home cook. The book is a celebration of home cooking. She writes, A home cook is not a lesser being than a chef, though a markedly different one. I hate hearing people describe themselves as just a home cook. We may not have the technical proficiency of a chef, but why should this matter? We cook to bring pleasure, comfort, and flavor to life to the table. Jamie Oliver is a skilled chef who understands a home cook. He gives recipes that are remarkably easy to replicate, includes methods and tips that are invaluable. In his first television series, he demonstrated how to make home entertaining effortless, inspiring a young generation to share delicious food at home with friends for the fun of it. In five ingredients, there's a collection of 130 new recipes, quick and easy enough to cook every day, any day, weekdays after work, or weekends with friends. Most are cooked from scratch in under 30 minutes. Some may take 10 minutes of your time, then take care of themselves on the hob or in the oven. Jamie comes up with clever combos of ingredients, guaranteeing maximum flavor with minimum fuss. An English friend was inspired to try the roast chicken after watching him on TV, massaging a whole chicken with tikka curry paste, then roasting with potatoes, cauliflower, and lots of coriander. It was, she said, as good as promised. There are sections on salads, pasta, eggs, chicken, fish, veg, pork, beef, lamb, rice, and noodles, 70% of them healthy, plus an indulgent chapter on sweet treats. Nigella's recipes are as irresistible as Nigella herself, a collection of enticing dishes not rigidly categorized but simply flow from Turkish eggs to begin through to a grapefruit margarita to end. I love the way Nigella roasts her duck with orange, soya and ginger, first slow cooking for one and a half hours ahead of time. It can be refrigerated for a day or two when needed, roasted at a high temperature to 20 degrees for about an hour until the skin is crisp and bronzed. There's a great recipe for slow roast five-spiced lamb to shred and wrap in Chinese pancakes instead of the more usual duck. The Parmesan French toast is something I too shall make often for a perfect early supper, to quote and the meatballs, though, will also be irregular. For a treat, use a can of caramelized condensed milk to make the no-churn bourbon-salted caramel ice cream. As always, Nigella writes beautifully, and her intros to the recipes are always a delight to read. So the two books are At My Table by Nigella Lawson, Chatter and Windus, 465 Rand, Five Ingredients by Jamie Oliver. That's Michael Joseph, 430 Rand. Melvin Miller, two books there.
To ancient Greece we go this holiday in two new books that confirm when it comes to the pleasures of the mind, few endeavors equal the good read, the soothe and seduction of the superb sentence and the titillating tale. In both cases, the stories have been told over and over again, over many centuries in fact, and it would be fair to say that many know the mythology well enough to wonder why again. The simple answer lies in the sweeping charm and skills of the tellings, the literary aftertaste in a manner of speaking, and then some. It's who the authors are that clinch the deal. Mythos is a new retelling of some of the famous stories from Greek mythology by the actor, comedian, presenter, and activist Stephen Fry. House of Names is a novel by the esteemed Irish writer Colum Toibin. It retells a small part of the legendary Oresteia familicide tragedy. While Fry's book has a cheerful countenance and the touch of lyrical British amusement and wit to it, as could be expected of the smart, celebrated entertainer, Coibin has written a wondrously modern, sharply-edged novel in which grand family and state politics play out to paradoxical tragedy. If the two books enter from opposite sides of the tragic comedy stage of ancient Greek drama, they share a remarkable vividness. The characters, conjured up centuries ago in ancient communal imagination, comes dramatically alive just behind the reader's eyes. In Mythos, Fry's sly craft with invented dialogue turns the Greek gods into fun or funny characters who could step in and out of a Noel Coward play. Fry, who earlier this year got into trouble in Ireland, briefly accused of blasphemy, explains early how the concept of the gods in ancient Greece did not have the exalted status of more modern religions. The relationship between God and man was more casual, only slightly charged with moral load. In House of Names, Toibin does away completely with the Greek gods and their role in the motives for the tragedies. His celebrated skill with finely tuned pregnant phrases conjures up a dense human psychology, punts the deeper questions of power and revenge. Toibin retells the story that Aeschylus recorded in his famous Oresteia, a series of dark, bloody murders, all potent and theatrical revenges. He tells of King Agamemnon of Argos, who is prevented to sail into battle for Troy due to lack of wind. To appease the gods for the wind, he sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia. When he returns as hero years later, his wife Clutemnestra and her lover Aegisthus kills him in revenge for Iphigenia's death, and his son Orestes is kidnapped. Years passed, and Orestes grows up and returns. Encouraged by his surviving sister Electra, he kills Clutemnestra and Aegisthus, and for that crime of matricide is eventually pursued by the Furies. Toibin fills in the gaps that linger in the classic telling of the legend in beautifully imagined personal histories. These are passages that read like film scripts. The story is covered from the perspectives of Clutemnestra, Electra and Orestes, the first two told in the first person. The prose of this grand story of betrayal, loss, grief, corruption, power, failure and loneliness is direct, often cold-bloodedly charged visceral and ever finely crafted with a poetic ring. House of Names is one of my favorite books of the year. Sadly, Fry does not include the Orisea characters in his mythos. In fact, for all the many names in his cast, there are still numerous left out, and one is not quite sure of Fry's aim with mythos, other than its entertainment value, however slickly told. 
There are many books about the famous old Greeks and their gods, and of course plays and terrible and good movies. Fry's book is enchantingly droll and camp at times, and is structured so you can dip in and out. A pleasant short read with a glass of late-night port. And a glass of late-night port. And that's it then. Today's winners, and they're going to be three instead of two, um, can't read the first name, says, says Baden Moodley, says something with an S, S Moodley, um, Joe Hall, and Eunice Hughes. We're going to ring you later in the afternoon. And it's Matinee Up next with the sweet-voiced Sheila Chisholm and Amanda Borta's book at this same time on Wednesday, December 20. From Rick Everett, who so kindly compiled the Andrew Lloyd Webber music to celebrate Evita, right here at Artscape. From Mataba Taba Radebi, who so cleverly kept the show on the road. And from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's Ask Santa to put a book in your shocking stocking. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. Mm-hmm.